This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. Hello, Behind the Knife listeners. We're happy to present our first clinical challenges in colon and rectal surgery episode, discussing the decision-making and challenges surrounding ostomy creation and management. We are one of two colorectal surgery teams uh, working with Behind the Knife this year, and we'll be sharing the stage with the team from Leahy. Before we begin, we'd like to briefly introduce our team, starting with our most senior surgeon, Dr. Susan Glanyak. I've been at the University of Louisville for a really long time and editor of DCR since 2017. The advantage of having been around for a long time is having worked with some really great people and also having learned from seeing some very bad things done. Next, our colorectal surgery colleague from Melbourne, Australia, Dr. Vlad Bolshinsky. Uh, the discrepancy of my name and accent always breeds confusion. I grew up in Australia and completed my surgical residency in Melbourne. I commenced post-fellowship training in 2015, and this journey took me to the United States, where I completed a clinical colorectal fellowship and then an associateship at the Cleveland Clinic. Subsequently, I became involved in the DCR Journal and uh, as the DCR Journal Club convener. I was fortunate to get to know Dr. Galandiak through the journal, and now I am very grateful to participate in these recordings with the excellent faculty from the University of Louisville. Next, Dr. Sandy Cavalogas. Hello, everyone. I'm a mid to early career attending, about to start my fourth year on faculty at University of Louisville. I have certainly gone through some hard knocks of being my own attending, and so hopefully I haven't done the dumb things that Dr. Glandick has seen. Particularly <laughs> <laughs> my residency at Vanderbilt University, and then my colorectal surgery fellowship at Cleveland Clinic, Florida, prior to coming here. I'm happy to join the Behind the Knife team this year. And lastly, I'm Dr. Hillary Simon. I did my general surgery training at, Gen at Allegheny General in Pittsburgh, and I'm finishing my colorectal surgery fellowship at the University of Louisville, and I'll be staying here as faculty. So today, we'll be discussing the most common, but at times challenging, scenarios surgeons face with managing patients who need or have an ostomy. Intestinal stoma creation is often an afterthought, but as we'll discuss, poor stoma creation can make your patient miserable. Collaboration with wound ostomy nurse is key. Aside from making and reversing, you also need to know how to prepare and care for stomas as a surgeon. Our discussion will focus on decision-making and techniques based on patient scenarios. Additionally, supplemental video content from the Diseases of Colon and Rectum Journal Video Vignette Collection will be included in the show notes for your viewing. Uh, let's talk about who needs a stoma. Well, I think it's for, you know, very important to first always ask, does the patient really need a stoma? There are a lot of scenarios where a thorough evaluation of treatable factors must be performed before proceeding with surgery. 
Remember, a surgeon shouldn't be a non-thinking technician performing surgery at the request of others without critically evaluating each patient. For example, patients requiring diversion for decubitus ulcers require careful evaluation and counseling. Those who are doing transfers with their upper body or those who are using canes are at significant risk of peristomal hernia. The stoma may really pose more problems than their initial situation. What do you think the most important preoperative consideration is? Well, if you're new to a hospital, you should never assume there is a trained endrostomal therapist. Many hospitals are trying to save money and are having individuals without proper training fill in wound anostomy positions. If patients are marked by such individuals, it's always safest initially to check their stoma markings before relying on their placement. When a patient is lying down, everything looks good and flat. It's only when they're sitting up, slumped over, that folds and creases appear. These are what prevent an ileosin from anostomy appliance from adhering. This is especially true in emergency surgery, where the stoma is the furthest thing from everybody's mind. Even if a patient is on a ventilator, I'll have the ICU nurse help raise the bed to a more upright position so that I can get an idea of a more suitable stoma site. The patient may wind up having that stoma for some time, and a poorly sighted stoma really can be a considerable loss of morbidity. In the elective setting, I think it's essential to mark patients in the upright sitting position and also have them twist to both sides so they're actually looking back over each shoulder and twisting their entire upper body and also to have them bend forward. This way you can see the effect of twisting and bending on the contour of the anterior abdominal wall. Is there anything particular regarding stoma location? Well, in most patients, the ostomy triangle that's located between the umbilicus and the anterior iliac crest is the ideal position for an intestinal stoma. However, in many obese patients, the abdominal wall will actually be thickest at this site. In addition, patients might not be able to see this area as it might be underneath the panis. For such individuals, a better stoma might actually a better stoma-like location might be in the upper abdomen, where the abdominal wall is usually thinner, and they might be able to see the stoma. Ideally, you should form the trephine through the middle of the rectus abdominis muscle. Patients get along better with stomas and have a better hospital experience, also if they've had some stoma education preoperatively. Trephine? What's a trephine? Well, a trephine is an opening you make in the abdominal wall through which the stoma passes, and a peristomal hernia rate is much lower if this is located within the rectus sheath as opposed to being outside of it. We throw around the word brook regarding ostomies. What does that actually mean? Well, brook ileostomy is a highly overused term that generally designates an everting matured ileostomy. This technique began in the early 1950s when the morbidity of ileostomies was very high due to obstructive symptoms that were caused by serositis of the exposed serosa when the small bowel was just brought out through the abdominal wall and not covered by averting the bowel as we do today. The essential concepts of creating a stoma are creating a large enough aperture in the abdominal wall to allow the bowel to pass through it without causing ischemia, but not too large to be predisposed to hernia formation. For most surgeons, this is an opening of two finger breaths. With minimally invasive surgery, this may be harder to gauge. Some surgeons fix the bowel to the fascia. With temporary stomas, this makes stoma closure more difficult. 
How far do you bring the bell outside the abdominal wall? Well, with respect to protrusion above the skin surface for an ileostomy, generally one and a half to two centimeter protrusion is ideal. For a colostomy, uh, usually only one and a half, one to one and a half centimeters. However, is it, if a patient is going to be having more liquid stool effluent, such as a right-sided colostomy, a patient with short bowel syndrome, or someone who's going to be receiving chemotherapy with drugs that can cause diarrhea, a greater degree of protrusion can be beneficial just to make pouching easier. How do you personally mature your ostomies, Dr. Glandiac? Well, for an endostoma, I use eight sutures, starting with four in each quadrant and then dividing the distance between these. For a lupuliostomy, placing the mesenteric sutures of the afferent and efferent limbs directly next to each other will ensure proper stoma diversion. Following this, following this the placement of the antimesenteric sutures, uh, it's followed by sutures halfway between each of these. Typically for a lupuliostomy, the efferent limb is placed distally, as prior studies have shown a higher rate of obstructive complications when the efferent limb was placed in the cephalad position. I don't use sutures from the end of the stoma to the underlying bowel to mature the stoma since they're not needed and they can actually tear out and cause fistulas similar to using fascial sutures. I tack the bowel to the subcutaneous fat to keep it in place prior to maturing the stoma and have had very few complications using this technique. So say it's post-op day two and your stoma isn't working. What are some of your tricks? Well, if there's a lot of edema of the bowel wall, placing a decompression tube such as a Foley or red rubber catheter into the stoma will allow for gas and liquid stool to escape and minimize the chance of an ileus. Are you ever concerned that placing a Foley or finger into the stoma so fresh post-op may cause harm? No, not if this is done gently. Insertion is often aided with the use of a saline flush and if I'm worried about postoperative edema at the stoma site, for example, due to a narrow caliber small bowel, I'll sometimes place such tubes intraoperatively, which is even easier. Anyone else want to chime in with their pointers? I'm very aware of how much my assistant is pulling up on the stoma through the abdominal wall. It's tempting to do, but then can kink the bowel above the fascia and cause an obstruction. Um, some pointers about maturing the stoma. Uh, I prefer to mature a stoma with a 2-0 chromic suture. I believe that using a slower uh, dissolving suture such as Vicryl is more likely to precipitate granulomas as it takes longer to disintegrate. Um, these can be a nuisance to patients. Um, I'm also pedantic about trying to uh, tie knots parallel to the skin. This helps spread the mucosa neatly and minimizing the, um, the amount of sutures required. I typically place four sutures for an endstoma, avoiding the mesentery, and six, so three to each limb, for a loop stoma, uh, obviously as long as it stays averted. Um, I do not pierce the epidermis with the suture, uh, particularly when maturing the small bowel, as this may uh, result in mucosal implants. I think this is a perfect segue into discussing the different types of stomas and why a surgeon would select one over the other. So, Dr. Bolshinsky, say you have a 45-year-old male, BMI 42, who presents to the emergency department with four days history of worsening left lower quadrant abdominal pain. He has peritoneal signs on exam. He's never had surgery before and is otherwise healthy. The plan is to go emergently to the operating room for an exploratory laparotomy. In preparation for the OR, what discussion do you have with your trainees regarding the different options for stoma creation in this individual? 
Um, in this patient specifically, I would be concerned about a colonic perforation and depending on his clinical state, an end colostomy, such as a Hartman's procedure or a diverting loop ileostomy may be required as part of the operation. Um, in my training, uh, one of the mentors I had, Dr. Lavery, used to always say, when forming a stoma, always assume that this stoma will be with the patient for life meaning never settle for a substandard stoma. Um, if performing a laparotomy, uh, I enter the abdomen via a midline through the umbilicus. Uh, incising the skin around the umbilicus may encroach on the stoma site. Uh, this is of particular significance when you are not certain where and what type of stoma will be required. Are there any particular considerations based on BMI alone? Obesity places extra challenges on ostomy formation. Arguably more important than BMI is fat distribution. Uh, men typically have visceral obesity and a relatively thin abdominal wall. The challenge in such patients is a restrictive brittle mesentery. Females have a thicker abdominal wall, but a more compliant mesentery. I always measure abdominal wall thickness on imaging prior to my elective stoma cases so I know what I'm getting into. How do you address the abdominal wall? I may need a, to perform several maneuvers. Um, uh, sighting the stoma higher sometimes helps. Typically, the abdominal wall is thinner above the umbilicus. In obese female patients, this might be occluded by the breasts. Uh, enlarging the size of the trephine, uh, firstly increasing the fascial defect, but then sometimes also even excising a generous disc of subcutaneous fat. Clearly, this may uh, create a hernia, uh, but that is a secondary issue. Um, a small wound protector is sometimes of benefit when maturing a stoma. Uh, also, maturing the stoma as part of the midline incision is also an option, though not at all an appealing one. Uh, for example, in patients with carcinomatosis or due to a hostile uh, adhesions uh, in the setting of a delayed take-back, you may not be able to mobilize any bowel at all. What if the patient has a foreshortened mesentery? Well, there are other maneuvers that you can do. For example, for a diverting lupuleostomy, mobilizing the cecum may be helpful. This gives a lot more mobility to the terminal ileum. Other things you can do are techniques such as peritoneal windowing, dividing arcades of the small bowel blood supply, defanning the mesentery, uh, a lot, using a wound protector like Dr. Bolshinsky is described to deliver the bowel through the abdominal wall, uh, making the hole bigger. You'd rather have a hernia than retraction or ischemia that leads to stenosis down the line. Uh, generally, an end loop stoma rather than an end stoma gives extra length, and we're going to discuss that in more detail shortly. Uh, selective placement of rods for stomas that are under tension, I believe, is on value. Um, this may be somewhat controversial based on the literature. In such cases, um, like uh, marked dilation uh, due to obstruction, I leave it, uh, the rod for a minimum of four days, but typically coordinate closely with an ostomy nurse. Uh, during my training in the States, stoma rods were plentiful. Uh, they are less common in Australia, so I have become more creative. Uh, recently, I have started using a 1 mil insulin syringe with the needle and plunger removed instead of a rod. Uh, this is readily available in the OR and does not affect the instrument count. Yes, I've seen all kinds of creative things. An ET tube stylet, 
um, or even making your skin bridge when you make your stoma circular incision you actually leave a b-shape so that you can pass a piece of skin through the mesenteric window what else have you guys seen uh, historically the rod was made of glass it was a rigid structure that would prevent retraction of the bowel i know some of my colleagues use red rubber catheters or nasogastric tubes but i personally do not support this as uh, these tubes bend as such, it will not prevent acute stoma retraction, but uh, do, in theory, promote mucocutaneous separation of the site of the tube. In a few cases during fellowship, we use the plastic sheath spinal needles come in. The worst part of stoma rods is taking them out. We've had to do minor surgery at bedside when one was lost in the sub-Q during removal, which is dissuaded use for me. I think getting back to basics and mobilize, mobilize, mobilize to not be dependent on a rod is really key. Uh, getting back to the original case scenario, a left-sided end colostomy in the morbidly obese can be extremely challenging. If for some reason I cannot mobilize the left colon adequately, my get-out-of-jail trick is to leave the descending colon stapled off and usually oversewn, and mature a loop distal transverse colostomy. Uh, like a long blind end with decompression through the efferent limb of the transverse colon. Typically, the transverse colon is relatively easy to bring out. Let's talk a little more about specific types of, uh, types of ostomies and examples of why one would choose one over the other. When would you use a mucous fistula? The management of the rectal stump is a common debate in cases of toxic colitis, whether it's IBD or C. diff. I believe that Anyone who requires an acute total colectomy for medically refractory disease should have the rectal stump placed above the abdominal fascia. In such cases, I deliver the entire colon, typically um, via a fan and steel incision in uh, MIS cases, and inspect the rectal stump before transection. I use a transverse uh, stapler to divide the bowel, and if the bowel does not hold, then I mature it formally like an end colostomy. If the bowel is of sound quality, I leave it buried under the skin. It is important to stress that the trephine for the mucous fistula should be the same as for a colostomy, meaning at least a small finger can be placed adjacent to the bowel via the trephine. Otherwise, the staple line will become ischemic and can break down. Though there are other options for managing your rectal stump, Obviously, leaving it in can increase the risk of a pelvic abscess, though some people will mitigate this by trying to place a transanal malacot for several days for postoperative decompression, or what Dr. Bolshinsky discussed, which also increases your wound infection. Really, I uh, need to sort of pick your risk depending on what the patient's risk factors are. Now, Dr. Glandiak, every fellow that trains here gets taught how to extracorporealize the anastomosis. Can you describe to the audience what this means? Well, this is actually easiest with an ileocolic anastomosis that you don't want to perform, whether this is due to local contamination, peritonitis, a poor nutrition or immunosuppression on, or, or, or a pure, poor, immuno, poor nutrition or immunosuppression on part of the patient. In this case, I will have marked the patient for a temporary stoma site. I'll make a stoma aperture or what Dr. Bolshinsky would call a terfane that is slightly bigger, as in most cases, the bowel is, is a bit edematous in these cases. I'll sew the back wall of the ileocolic anastomosis as if I was creating an end-to-end -end anastomosis, and then I'll bring out the bowel through the stoma aperture. The colon end is matured as the flush skin level efferent limb, 
and more of the small bowel end is pulled above the skin, and it is averted and matured as an afferent ileostomy. This way, after eight weeks, the diverted anastomosis or ileostomy, depending on what you call it, can be taken down without the need for a laparotomy. What role does the prasad or N-loop stoma play? Um, if the mesentery won't reach, the loop stoma can reach further than an end stoma. Um, and so rather than devascularizing the marginal vessels through traction um, and consequent necrosis, uh, you're managing to get a bit extra length. It is great as a bailout in obese patients uh, when a true end colostomy is not possible. The colotomy and ostomy maturation is the same as a routine loop stoma. I mature all loop stomas irrespective of their small or large bowel by averting the proximal limb of the bowel. We also need to think of other specific case scenarios for deciding on ostomy type, like avoiding an ileostomy in chronic kidney disease patients. Yeah, I mean, up to 20% of patients who undergo ileostomy creation will require hospital readmission within the first 30 days post-op. Management of dehydration and the sequela of high ileostomy output is outside the scope of our technical decision-making focus today. However, I encourage listeners to counsel patients on this common complication and master the medical management algorithm. Notably, a stepwise addition of fiber or bulking using specific foods to Imodium, Lamotil, tincture of opium, or other narcotics, and consideration of cholestyramine are just to name a few. And it's important that patients add, not switch, medications to slow stoma output. A lot of times they'll say they've tried everything, but that really meant that they stopped one thing and tried a different thing when it's usually an additive effect. So let's talk about stoma complications. While there are all types of things that can go wrong with your stoma, the most common ones are retraction, prolapse, mucocutaneous separation, though that one is easily managed with uh, filling the area with stoma paste. You can rarely get stoma varices in select patients. I have no doubts there are many other problems that are unexpected. However, these are the ones that I've seen the most. As Dr. Bolshinsky mentioned, there are a lot higher uses of stoma rods in the U.S. than elsewhere, and there's also a plethora of data to prove that stoma rods do not help them from retracting. I'm not going to pretend that I've never used one. However, after reviewing the data, I certainly try to do it remarkably less than I did before. If the stoma rod is left in for too long a period of time, this can exert undue pressure on the back wall of your loop and erode through the lining of the bow. If you do use one because you just can't resist, you should definitely make sure that the rod is removed before the patient is discharged from the hospital. Otherwise, if they are lost to follow-up, you can certainly get this breakdown as a major complication. Retraction will always remain an issue, particularly in patients who are morbidly obese, but I've also seen it in patients who have rapid weight gain after surgery once they start feeling better from whatever ailed them. In general, as long as the stoma remains above the level of the fascia and you have a skilled wound ostomy nurse, you will be able to get by until you either need to recite it or reoperate to free up the underlying bowel or hopefully just reverse their stoma. What about stoma prolapse? Like rectal prolapse, all trainees are taught the pour some sugar on it trick to reduce the prolapse acutely. But what should we be doing as the next step? Stoma prolapse is also a pretty common occurrence, and it's also very frustrating. The traditional theory is that typically the efferent limb is what prolapses. If the patient has to have a loop due to a distal obstruction, 
you can attempt to tighten your stoma trephine at the fascial level and just bring up a corner of the efferent limb for a mucous fistula within your stoma site. If the stoma is obviously markedly dilated or swollen and keeps prolapsing, this part of the bowel may need to be resected. There's no literature to support tacking the bowel to the fascia underneath or that a sugar baker type of prophylactic mesh would make a difference. Of course, when the stoma continues to prolapse, then it's obviously time to assess if the stoma can be reversed. The data does show that loop transverse colostomies have the highest prolapse rate, and I believe these are also most commonly made with an acute obstruction and a very tight abdomen. When attempting to make a direct cut down in the epigastric region to make your stoma, the trephine is larger and a hernia results due to dilation of the bowel. And then additionally, once this bowel decompresses back to normal size, I believe it's now more mobile to prolapse. What if a cirrhotic patient shows up to your clinic with stoma bleeding? Stomal varices have been observed in obviously cirrhotic patients, but don't forget that particularly in ulcerative colitis, primary sclerosis and cholangitis can lead to end-stage liver disease in these patients. The varices are located at the mucocutaneous border of the stoma, and the theory is that the patient has developed extraperitoneal ectopic vessels from portal hypertension and venous outlet obstruction. Therefore, you must exclude portal vein thrombosis as a cause with ultrasound or other imaging study. TIPS is a common knee-jerk answer to treat this. However, your TIPS will not work if thrombosis exists. However, provided your venous outflow is not obstructed, TIPS does have the lowest rebleeding rate and need for subsequent procedures. I feel like people are often reluctant given its known side effect of hepatic encephalopathy, but the literature states this happens in approximately 20% of patients after that procedure. Other methods for treating the stomal varices include direct suture ligation, where you uh, disconnect your mucocutaneous junction and then dissect down to the varices and suture ligate them, where you can coil embolize them with interventional radiology, or you can inject various sclerosins. So now I'm going to open it up to my more senior partners, Drs. Galandiak and Bolshinsky, and ask your opinion on what you do with a patient who, let's say, has had their entire colon out or are not a candidate for an ileorectal anastomosis or have an endileostomy that just keeps prolapsing. There does not seem to be an easy fix for a recurrent prolapsing endileostomy. Do you guys have any tricks? Um, Dr. Glandiak is far more experienced than me, but from time to time, I have seen patients with prolapsing endstomas, and these are frustratingly tend to recur even after repair. Um, for an endstoma not to prolapse or retract for that matter, the bowel needs to be fixed in at least two places. Mucocutaneous junction is an obvious one. Uh, the other is usually at the site of the fascia or the serocerosal adhesions of the inverted bowel segment. Some patients fail to form these adhesions for unclear reasons. Uh, therefore, the principle of definitive repair should aim to promote adhesions and consequently fixation at the above-mentioned points. Um, an elegant and logical way of achieving this is the same as forming the nipple valve in a K-pouch using a non-cutting stapler. So I commonly use a TA with the pin removed by bone cutters. Um, the brooked bow is fixed in three points. So avoiding the mesentery. This promotes serocerosal adhesions and therefore prevents recurrence of prolapse. After repair of a stoma prolapse, patients will often need to switch their stoma appliance as this can result in a change in the abdominal wall contour. 
While the stoma itself can cause trouble, we all know that acute and chronic skin issues related to stomal care or lack thereof can be real trouble for patients and providers. What are your thoughts on this issue, Dr. Glandiak? Well, patients are left to fend for themselves regarding stoma complications after discharge, and often when they see a physician regarding these issues, the stoma appliance isn't even removed to look at the problem. If you don't have a wound ostomy nurse and you saw the patient post-op with peristomal irritation, what are some common causes? Well, peristomal dermatitis is often caused by improper pouching technique, such as cutting the opening of the appliance too large, which allows intestinal effluent to contact the skin, and this actually causes a chemical burn. Once this starts, it's very easy for the condition of the skin to get worse and worse. I've seen this get to the point where patients actually have had a th- have third-degree burns with complete loss of skin around the stoma. The secret is prompt recognition and treatment. The use of Egan seals to help form a good seal around the stoma, using a skin prep, and if there's a fungal infection due to moisture, treating this with Nystatin powder. All of these will help alleviate the problem. In many cases, stoma retraction can also cause problems with leakage. This is often due to the presence of a peristomal hernia. In this case, switching to a lightly convex appliance and adding an ostomy belt can often help. Peristomal pyoderma gangrenosum is a problem that I also frequently see in my practice as I have a high proportion of inflammatory bowel disease patients. This has also been reported in patients without IBD. The reason why this occurs so commonly around stomas is that the peristomal area is a site of frequent skin trauma with patients repeatedly taking off and replacing stoma appliances. The main patient complaint is significant pain and difficulty with stoma appliance adherence. You should obtain cultures and perform a biopsy of these areas. Intralesional steroid therapy and topical tacrolimus are helpful, and there's a great algorithm for this in one of the references that are included with the podcast. What about peristomal abscesses? Well, peristomal abscesses are typically related either to technical issues in maturing the stoma or due to Crohn's disease. In the former case, this is usually due to sutures that are placed too deep and which then pull through the bowel. This usually results in an abscess that's directly adjacent to the mucocutaneous junction. These typically will drain spontaneously, and since they're draining at the skin level close to the periphery of the stoma, they generally really don't require any specific treatment other than making sure that they drain into the stoma appliance. Well, our time is just about up for this clinical challenges in colon and rectal surgery episode. This has been a great review of the challenges associated with stoma creation and management. So let's wrap it up with five quick hits to take away with you. Well, remember to optimize the patient preoperatively with preoperative marking and education with a wound ostomy nurse. The surgeon steers the ship, so if there's no WOCN, you have to mark the patient yourself. And remember to have the patient sit up to do this. When forming a stoma, mobilize more bell than you think you need and assume that this stoma will be with the patient for life. Always make the best stoma you can for the patient who is in front of you. Number three, preoperative imaging review can really help you plan your options, both electively or in emergent situations. Aside from creating a traditional end or loop ostomy, remember your get-out-of-jail options with end loops, your mucous fistula management options, 
and rods, rarely. And stomas are important. Don't ignore them. They're a vital part of postoperative care. Early recognition and treatment of skin problems can make a world of difference in your patient's quality of life. Thank you all for tuning in. And until next time, dominate the day. Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review. Content produced by Behind the Knife is intended for health professionals and is for educational purposes only. We do not diagnose, treat, or offer patient-specific advice. Thank you for listening. Until next time, dominate the day.